0: This is Joshua Bell with the kilt and the cloth as we continue our Bible study in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 12. I wanted just to kind of remind you a little bit that as we continue into this discovery of the Gospel of Matthew with a different lens, um, the the preeminent theme that I want to have in your mind the entire time we read this is, is that the Roman Empire is not in the background, it is in the foreground. It is literally everything that the Gospel of Matthew is arguing against, um, which is different than the way we've taught it. Most of the time we teach it with this idea that, well, the Romans were doing this thing. Well, as he's continuing this conversation, it just so happens that uh, at the time of this in the first century, there were what we call traveling philosophers um, that would come from town to town that were considered imbued with gifts from the gods. Um, during the Roman era of the first century, uh, especially in Jerusalem, because it's a, it's a metropolitan area. Um, and, and remember that these, uh, oh, what do we call it? The ones that stand on the corners spouting off prophecies. They, this, is, this, is a, this is a thing that is happening in Jerusalem at the time of uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew being written. So there's a, there's a lot of anti-authority, a lot of anti-Roman discussion in such a way that says, "Look, this is this is how Jesus is going to be different." Um, the interesting thing for me is is that um, and Dr. Carter, I had to pull up a note real quick, to make sure I was close, was is in the midst of this, he calls his he calls these people to follow along with him, and, and Dr. Carter says uh, that. In the study of the prophets claim to be Yahweh's agents at work, this demonstrates Jesus is doing God's work and legitimates, legitimates the disciples as God's agents. Uh, they, they included similar features as a follow, uh, in, initiated by a founder figure in the midst of everyday life, which elicits an immediate response. Uh, the call occurs in the midst of the Roman Empire, in the midst of the empire's close control of fishing. Remember, Rome owned everything on the land and in the sea. Everything in the sky was owned by the gods. So it's interesting to point out that the place that Jesus calls his disciples happened to be near the water. Uh, so Rome, uh, whereby fishing licensing was only given by Rome for the fishermen to be able to use the Sea of Galilee, the fishermen had quotas that they had to provide um, specifically for. Rome, and uh, before they could feed themselves, um, and then the taxation secured that. taxation secured Roman uh, sovereignty over the water and its contents. Uh, Jesus' call, Jesus's call contests the dominant reality by asserting God's sovereignty and offering an alternative way of life. Here, I had to point that out because I'd forgotten that last time we were talking. This is that when you when you hear. Jesus's move on earth especially in the gospel of Matthew you'll hear these really fascinating things but there's this idea that Caesar has been gifted by the gods everything that is on land as far as he could see which is why when we talked last week about the temptation of Christ Jesus is tempted not really but Jesus is tempted by the satan to say you can have all of this and I'll give you the authority to have it. Um, that that's that's a Roman thing, not not a, a, a Jesus thing, right? So, this conversation from the sovereignty of Rome, where so- Rome literally taxes people to fish, and that if you do fish, you have to meet this quota in order for you to be out in the water. That my favorite part was is Dr. Carter also pointed out that. That's the first time that you started to see that people started to get um, taxed on their equipment. So uh, very, very rarely did people own their own equipment. It was something that you used in order to work for things. So everything was, things. surfed them all the time, right? Everything you had, you didn't own. So-
1: It was both owned by Romans? Yes. The government?
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. So somebody that worked for Rome owned okay. that, so- um, the best way that Dr. Carter explained it is, is the only people that didn't have to worry about anything were that top 3% of the world, the elites. Everyone else, the non-elites worked for someone else. And those people worked for the betterment of Rome. Yeah, that was the easiest way to say that. Mm-hmm. So, so there isn't anybody that isn't starving, yes.
2: That puts a whole new twist on the, 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 the fishermen on the night that they had no fish. Exactly that they would have had to pay a quota, even though they had
0: none. That's right, so then they came back to shore, which is why they stayed up all night long fishing, because if they didn't meet their quota, they were just out, like, so they were gonna go starving. So yeah, it, t- it changes the whole perspective of this. So let's let's start there with this idea in our mind that as, as these you have these people standing on the street that are prof- prof- prophesying street philosophers, right? They always had these people that would follow them. So when Jesus comes, it's like that, but different. So here we go. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. Uh, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, and the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, And for those who have sat in the region and shadow of death, light as dawn. Um, this is, I lost my brain for just a second. This, this passage is uh, important just for the fact that he is quoting specifically where did it go? Isaiah chapter nine, verses one to two. And in the eighth century text from Isaiah, Assyria is occupying the land that Isaiah is talking about, but God promises the deliverance. The deliverance from Rome is offered through Jesus. Does that make sense? So, what the gospel writer here is doing, he is literally using Isaiah, not as a proof text, but as proof that Jesus is different. Does that did it make, make sense of that? Do you know what I mean by the difference between proof texting and using it as proof? Yeah. Well, good. Proof texting is something that we really got good at in the 20th century. So let's say I tell you all, you're not allowed to eat chocolate. So what somebody would do is, is they'd find a passage of scripture in the Bible, and they say, look, it says right here, you cannot... Enjoy chocolate. and therefore you can't eat it from now on. Completely out of context, completely out of the way that it was written, but we it, we proved our text by using text. This, this is your proof. It's, we do this a lot. We, we, we've done this with uh, uh, the idea of divorce, right? Well you shouldn't get divorced. It's really bad, except for the fact because they take one little passage of scripture, and they say, this is why you shouldn't get divorced. And they, and they t- take it completely out of context. Paul is very clear that divorce can happen. And it did happen in the first century, which is also ironic because it didn't happen. But in the Jewish world, in the Jewish world, you could stand up to your wife and say, we are divorced. We are divorced. We are divorced. Three times. Done. Where do they get that? From the text, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So there's a difference. I can use scripture to prove what I believe, but then I've also used scripture to say, this is why you should believe it, and that's dangerous. Here, and I, this gospel writer of Matthew is taking this quote from Isaiah and saying, here's your proof that Jesus is this God," and he uses it the right way. Do you remember the time? You could hear it, right? You remember the time we were underneath the, uh, the rule of the Assyrian Empire? Isaiah talked about this time. This is what they're talking about. Um, and so, so so, and then it goes even a step further by saying, and this is the one that we've been talking about. So now this person could deliver us from Rome, just like this person in Isaiah delivered us away from the Assyrians. See how different that is. Normally we've read this and we're like, oh, look, it's so nice. It's happy. <laughs> no, This guy is brilliant. Uh, so from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come here. Uh, and Jesus has that ability. Now, this the second section, I know I, I know I've gotten uh, already been warned. We have a lot of questions about it. Uh, the first section, this is broke down into uh uh, what's it, several sections. The first section uh, verses 1 on uh, no wait yeah it yeah. Be- begins with 17 verses 17 to 25 um, is his beginning of his public ministry with summary. In chapter 5 verses 1 through verses chapter 11 verse 1, uh, one job, Jesus declares God's empire. And forms an alternative community. And in this process describes and demonstrates the healing and wholeness of God's empire, which is different than Rome's. So before we have to get into this idea of God's empire, we have to we have to begin slowly. So before I go any further, any questions? Because I know I'm kind of going fast. Before we get into <laughs> the Jesus calling his disciples thing.
1: With the background you just gave, how is Jesus different than John? Or how is John different than Jesus? Great question.
0: So, so John,
1: and I'm talking about the people that are there. I mean, you know, why would, why do they look, why is the guy on this corner looking different than the guy on that corner? So, the guy on,
0: the, on that corner, John, is telling them that you need to follow this guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, this is the problem. This is a, a major problem in the first century. There, there are two camps uh, that happened for a long time.
1: Because John's got the big one, I mean, there's no one following Jesus yet.
0: No, yeah, he's got a big fo- John the Baptist followers uh, <coughs> become a thorn in the side of the first century Christians for quite a while. because <coughs> John is so rebellious that that they even are separated from the community, like they're out in the wilderness thing.
1: Um, and he has disciples. I don't want to get too far ahead, but he has disciples. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and he, and he teaches them the way that he does things. Yeah, so so for the, for the readers or the hearers of this text, they've already had that battle. They've already recognized that Jesus Jesus um, supersedes John's followers. But John's followers are okay as long as they proclaim Jesus as Savior and follow his teachings.
1: Which John does. I mean,
0: exactly. So that's that's the major distinction there. It's this idea of disciple, right? A, a disciple in that in that time frame comes from that Socratic understanding. Uh, I'm talking about so- Socrates. All of Socrates' students were disciples of Socrates. They took everything that he said and they they, they followed his teachings. Now, the beautiful part about Socrates is, is that he wanted them to create their own ideas from the beginning thought process, which is why you get. People uh, like Plato and Aristotle that are different and yet similar. You see, you see? So this disciple thing, the hearers of the first century are leaning towards that. These are students of Jesus. They are students of John the Baptist. But what Jesus gives them is a way of life, not, a, not just a school. for. So this.
1: there's nothing radical about to any of the people around there about jesus starting right i mean it's when he it's when he it's when he gets deeper into what he's saying
0: but it's commonplace yeah so it's, it's a commonplace thing somebody that has a voice that has the ability to articulate thought attracts a follow and and so for them it's not that unheard of But Matthew is really trying to make sure you understand that everything that's happening could not have happened without the power of God. Uh, He is different than John the Baptist in that way because of what happens later.
1: Well, I understand all that. I was just wondering about the people that are hanging out by the light. Jesus looks different. Yeah, right. right. We're going to get into why he's different. But I mean,
0: very quickly. It's good comments. We lost anybody yet? Okay, good. Here we go. So as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. Does it say Petros there?
2: Um, Next to know, Petron.
0: John. Petron, okay. Uh, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Is that people or necklace? And it's, and it. it's a
2: man. throw
0: of
2: it's me It's, it's man.
0: man. Human people. <laughs> human people, right. Male um, human people. The male human people. Um, imme- immediately they left their nets and followed him. And went there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed. <coughs> so right off the bat, there's no discussion. There's no question. Come follow me. And
2: they... Andrew had already witnessed the baptism and oh. he said he'd not. Uh, Wasn't Andrew uh, one of the ones that was at the baptism of Jesus I, yeah, He was a follower of John the Baptist, I think, but I was looking for that this weekend. I couldn't find it. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know if that's I don't in the math- that. gospel. It's, Matthew It's not okay. in Matthew, but I looked in the other three and I didn't find it. Yeah,
0: I, I know that's something we've talked about. Andrew is a fascinating person as far as as a um, a disciple because there's a lot of stuff written about him, but we don't know where it came from. Sometimes the Gospel of Don Thomas specifically talks about Andrew several times, but the rest of them, they, he's he's just very important. But yeah, in the Gospel, saying the
2: same thing, we've heard it
0: somewhere. Yeah, we've heard it somewhere. It's, it's that's not a, i've never heard anybody talk about anger
2: outside it had to come from the bible and from the church oh because yeah so i'm saying
0: it's probably the book of acts okay. i i read
1: it somewhere because it, they said he was one of john's disciples that's actually why i was asking the question about
0: oh yeah about the john the baptist's versus jesus's i'm pretty sure it's in the book of acts okay. there's
1: two so of it three. wasn't like a total stranger walked up to them they Andrew had seen him before and and knew something about him before. Well, Matthew
0: wants you to know that it's a total stranger. Yeah. That's the difference.
1: The other ones say, ask John and John says, yeah, go.
0: Yeah, right. So Luke, for example, so let's say the story about Andrew is in the book of Acts. Luke is going to have a different spin on it that they knew Jesus. They've seen him. Matthew, no. This is purely divine intervention here. That's a big distinction. Um, and, and then the story of Andrew being a, a, a follower of John would then make more sense being in the book of Acts, because Luke wants you to understand that there's a relationship being built. Matthew, the most important thing to take from Matthew is he is the fulfillment of prophecy. Nothing that happens to Jesus is human. Yeah, that's a good way to say that. It's fully divine. Um there are human characteristics, but not.
1: I was just gonna say that he starts off real quick because we just read it. Yeah. He calls, I mean, he says he's fulfilling the prophet Isaiah's.
0: Yep. And boom, there it is. Yeah. And here's your proof. That's what Matthew's saying. Now, the part that Matthew's gonna want to focus in on is the transforming presence of God's reign. So if you're look at this next part. So he's called these 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 people. Now now you're my student you know you're my disciples uh in this moment they've encountered god's rule uh, his presence god's salvation and now um, jesus then goes into galilee so here's how it goes jesus went to Gal- throughout galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people So his fame spread throughout all of Syria and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains and demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics. Uh, And he cured them and great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and all from around Jordan. Uh, he hasn't
2: been in those places yet. And he
0: hasn't been in those places, right. It's just automatically Jesus has now taken over uh, most of the Roman Empire in that area. So God's empire is continuing to grow. Uh,
1: so we only have disciples, four disciples at this point in that time? That is correct. Okay.
0: Yep. And that's all he wants in the Gospel of Matthew. This is Matthew's instant understanding of God's empire. I have to tell you this really fascinating thing that I never heard before until I was in Dr. Carter's class. There's this thing about epileptics. Um, in, in the in the in the passage. And I think it is
2: it's
0: epilepsio, I think. But there's a there should be a selonia. There it is. Selenia so that's it. So that word that's translated in, from Greek into English turns into epilepsy. But the Greek part has a root word of the word lunos, uh, L-U-N-O-S, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, where we get the idea of lunar. Well, in the Roman world, um, the, the god of the moon um, is, is, is a thing that takes over at night. <laughs> right, and I'm being very specific. The interesting thing is, is epileptics in the first century when they had their seizures, what do they do with their eyes?
2: They roll, they roll
0: them back, and they form the shape of a moon uh, with their eyes. And so, uh, Dr. Carr pointed out that that word, the, the the is in Greek, is literally talking about where the moon god possesses them.
1: And is
0: that what they're calling demon, demonic? Well,
1: epileptic is separate.
0: Epileptic is a different thing. So the moon god takes over the epileptics, um, and that's why their eyes roll back. And that's why their eyes form the shape of the moon. Mm. But the demoniacs are literally just people that have been possessed by. <coughs> it starts
2: Yeah, being possessed by the moon would be being possessed by a god. Right, being be possessed demon. by another god. It wouldn't be a demon. Right. Demons were not gods. Exactly. But the possessed part is on both words. Yes. Zominos
0: so is is on both. Zominos so is on both of those. So, so that's so the
2: possessed and moon possessed. I never possessed. never
0: caught that before until until he said that he's like oh no see this is this is your proof that this is <laughs> an epileptic is different than a demoniac you know this is this is being possessed by God uh, by a moon god ludos and then there's the possessed by a demon uh, which is the manios. Right? D-A-E-M-O-N? That's right. I never get that right. In my head I have it, but I don't, I don't keep it in my head. That so the point is, is, the empire has not taken place. People are being possessed by Roman gods. People are being possessed by demons. And they are now following Jesus. He heals them all. And the word for heal is, is where we get therapy. Yeah. Therapy. paying. They're paid, mm-hmm. so it's it's really cool. Okay, so that's all of his
2: disciples. That's God's introduction to the empire. For decapolis, my Bible says ten pounds. Is that the same thing? Same thing. De- Deca means ten,
0: and and, and and it's and it's really weird. We we don't exactly know which decapolis he's talking about. Um, there are a lot of people that say they do say close <laughs> to these 10 towns, but there are a lot of decopolises at that time. So, you want to think of it like an urban area with suburban areas, there were a lot of those. So, I'm, I'm sure that Dr. Carr probably has it down in the last detail, but what is that verse 25?
2: Yeah. You know, like Oklahoma City with New City, del City, right? More mm-hmm. Norman, Bethany, Norman. Okay. Oh, that's a decapolis. I
0: mean, it's, it's, his, City. his biggest thing is is Dr. Carter's really adamant about the, the thing that social scientists have agar- argued that in the harsh context of social t- tensions, that sometimes the sickness can be psychosomatic. However, in this place, they're very specific. Um, Yeah, he does not even go into where the acophilus is from. Oh, there it is, yeah. He he writes it right here. Moonstruck people. He honored Selene because moonlight aided the capture of Jerusalem. Um, That's interesting. Demonstrates God's control even over the moon in in Rome's defiance of Rome's claims. uh, In defiance of Rome's claims. Jesus overpowers the moon, a possible symbol of the reversal of Rome's moon-blessed success. Uh, which is cool. I never thought about it that way. Um, and he just says, and then the rest of those places are um, people that are underneath the Roman Empire. Okay. So let's talk about the sermon now. Did you have any more questions for me? Or, or this is Matthew's understanding. It's really hard to separate the four. But Matthew's most famous passage is. I think uh, is the Beatitudes. I think I think we talk more about Matthew's Beatitudes than anybody else's. The other part that I would say that we talk about in the Gospel of Matthew is this great commission, which is also not found in any of in any of the other texts uh, at all. Uh, when she, Matthew's at the end says, "Go into and teach all the nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, baptizing and teaching them in these ways." Noel will be with you till the end of the age. It's the only only text in the entire New Testament that does that. So kind of important to point out. But that's the one we talk about the most. So um, these, Dr. Carter talks about it in the sense of there are basically five collections. Um, The first part of this is the blessings and sayings. The second part, the, the middle section then comes into six different interpretations of scripture. Then it's the instruction on these three distinctive discipleship practices. Then teaching on social and economic practices. And then, which Matthew is really good at, he ends with an eschatological understanding. Now, eschatological, is not a a word I want you to be unfamiliar with. Eschatology is the end of time. At the end, and for them, I want you all to hear this. even those on the recording. Eschatology is not saying that tomorrow the world is going to die. Eschatology is saying that this is the end of this time. Today. Not, we don't worry about tomorrow. It's today. So when people talk about the Book of Revelation, specifically, the eschatological lenses that tomorrow is going to happen and this is your proof, that's not the eschatology that's being taught to the first century. They're saying that this day will end. Rome will no longer be in charge. <coughs> we will now live a different life. So, the Sermon on the Mount is a big, big passage of scripture, probably did not take him 25 minutes. So, you ready? All right, here we go. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and I have to pause there. Why does the mountain matter? I think Moses. Well, you can look down. yeah things happen
2: on the mountain. Any important Everything
0: things happen on top mountain. of the mountain, and as Ben pointed out. Everybody can see him. He's yeah. up on top. They can yeah. also hear him, yeah. and they can also because
2: hear uh, the him. Yeah. the hard rocks yeah. Are yeah. So behind so them, cause right. the sound <laughs> to expand from They don't have a don't have a sound system. The mountain and the water, both in both both those places, God uses the the lands, the mountain or the water, to amplify the voice of Jesus when He's speaking.
0: There's a lot of that, um, so all of these things and more. So He gets on top of the mountain. And after he sat down, is it Reclinio there? When
1: he sat down?
0: Yes. Coffee Santos. No, he said. His disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to think about this last, last part here. Uh, blessed are the people who revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is a direct slam against the elites. Um, I want you to think about it that way. If this is a this is a if you're talking amongst yourselves and the elites here that we are to take care of the poor. Uh, blessed are they for they what is it blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh well that's great. So this kingdom of heaven must be full of, full of poor people. you know uh, blessed are the meat for they will inherit the earth. Well how do they do that? Well we own everything. You, you see this 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 is literally a jab um, and at the same time this is really what's happening. you're you're literally getting to hear how they felt when the elites were putting their thumb down on them this is a big deal
1: so is he talking to the multitudes or to his disciples
0: well it's fascinating right because his disciples came to him and then he began to speak to each of them there's he saw the crowds and he went up the mountain and after he sat down his disciples came to him and say and then he began to speak so the idea here is is that the audience hears this
1: but he's speaking to them he's
0: speaking to the disciples okay
1: and then also, I mean, several times he mentions heaven. Yes. This this is not a Old Testament no. thought.
0: <laughs> no. And, and this, this kingdom of heaven, what is it translated into? Asileus' so, so
1: kingdom, heaven just Uranoi. It's the same thing as in the, Our Father Garden, heaven is the same word. Right, yes. So it's
0: a, it's a prayerful uh, version of heaven. So, yeah, this is a different
1: theology. They've created a new concept. And only reason I'm mentioning this is because it happened all the time in the Old Testament. People are already aware of this. Yes. I mean, that, that's kind of why I was asking earlier about the, the street street corner guys. This is not uncommon for them. This is new to them, but for the people that <laughs> for us, we're already aware of heaven, is what I'm trying to say. Right. So that
0: yeah, and, and I think that. And I'm going to make a critique. I don't usually do this. I think the struggle that I have in the 21st century is that we have so many, so many ideas of heaven that we've complicated it. Right? Like I, in our Sunday school class on Sunday, there was a very deep discussion about heaven. And, and it's, it's a conversation that we've had lots of times. Um, and it, there's nothing wrong with this. I think part of the struggle that we have is that the fact that you all have the ability to read and write, you've read a lot, and lots of people have lots of opinions on heaven, um, but the Bible doesn't speak very clearly as to what heaven is. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And, and that's on purpose. I, I think that's very much on purpose. The Gospel of John tries to help us uh, and, and, and keeps it very simplistic. I go to prepare a place of many rooms. Okay, that's 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 really nice. Thank you very much. A place where all of us are welcome. That's really good. Thank you. It's very really nice. Matthew, um, heaven is something that they're still kind of waiting through, like we should be, and and like we've talked in the and it's not a critique of you, Rob. It's a critique of the idea of the word heaven. Now has turned into this thing. And I, I mean, folks, I wish I could simplify this in the sense of because. There are so many books that are not even biblical, that are written about heaven. I think the beautiful part here, what Matthew is trying to do, is is that this is a kingdom that is now under the rule of God, (coughs) with Jesus as the emperor.
1: I guess that's where I was headed at, is it's uh... (coughs) a... follow me and there's, there's uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. Right. I mean, you know, the, yes. but this would be new to him. It's what I'm trying to say. Yes, you yes, know, that perfect. There, there is no answer to the Rome. I mean, there's no heaven there. there there's just persecution. Yes. And, and he's preaching that there's something beyond this world.
0: I think Dr. Carter kind of referred to this as, as like, you know, we, we've said it a couple of times in different groups, like that, that as these people are hearing this, they 're literally living in what their version of hell would be. you know like they're, they're starving to death. They, they're, the people are getting sick. I mean it's just running rampant, it's just disgusting. Um, and and yet there's no no hope but Jesus is providing and I think Robert you were alluding to and, and perfectly was is that this is for the hearers, not for the elites. like the elites well, they, This is better than what you have. So I think that's beautiful, which then makes sense for this next part. So if he says all of that, this is for all of the non-elites. They're being persecuted by the elites. He then uses an interpretation of scripture. He transforms this mission um, for them. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt is lost, it stays. How can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. I, I love that language. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after a lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And I, and I love this next part. Um, I just wanted to give you a moment. Anybody have any comments there? Okay, then we we'll keep going. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. It's very important that you all hear this. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven, and this should be the same word as before, okay good and earth pass away uh for not not one letter not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until it is all accomplished therefore whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven for i tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does this say that Torah is no longer? Uh-uh. No. What have we always taught?
1: You don't have to listen to the Old Testament. Basically. That is correct.
0: Jesus has come, therefore the Old Testament is now old. That's literally what we say.
1: You, you heard
2: it was said, but I say. You kind of lean on those scriptures. Right.
0: Too, you know. <clears throat>
2: Okay, so this into uh, the whole thing in here. If you do these things, it doesn't say you won't get to heaven. It says you will be the least in heaven. Uh-huh. Are there levels in heaven?
0: Evidently, according to the gospel of
2: Matthew. What's the difference of being there and being on earth?
0: We don't know. I don't know if they
2: know.
1: I mean, you know, it, it I'm already the lowest here," said. "You're telling me the lowest there too, you know? Well, well, it also said that the last will be first, and the first will be last. That's right.
0: On. Yeah. That's right. I mean, this is this is a this is an interesting passage. I, I think I feel like what I would what I would say in response to this is, is that remember we're talking to extremely poor people, and that there's going to be a hierarchy no matter where they go, and the only way they're going to be able to understand it is if. They recognize, if I do the right thing, I'm going to be okay. Um, I don't want to simplify it that way, um, but you're absolutely, you are absolutely caught it. There's evidently layers of heaven, according to Matthew, as to those who follow the law and those who don't. If you don't, well, you're going to get the small change For the rest of us get a nice house.
1: You know, when Jake died... I had some Catholic friends that sent me cards that had prayers in them that said that he's not there yet, that, they're, that they have this period of waiting. And it really had me confused because I'm convinced that he's there, but in their belief, not there yet. Yes, yeah, And it hard. Really had... Me confused. Well, we're,
0: we're talking millennia now of this conversation. Dr. Carter in, in the class when we were talking about the gospel his first thing was is he said I wish they left that part out. <laughs> he said because it's a bully approach. He says it's it's either you listen to what we say or you don't. And, and then you get this what, where it goes from that is this idea of who gets to come to the kingdom of heaven. Well, if you don't do everything right, you don't get to go. And this is where Dr. Carter said, it's, it's a bully approach. Everything else up to this point has not been that way.
1: If you believe that, then what was the purpose of Jesus Christ? Amen.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so here's, here's the problem. So at the end of time, or at this time, uh, and we've died, there's a pressure now put upon us about our earthly adventures. Does this sound familiar? I've lived a good and godly life. It's the language we use. I'm not a religious person. I'm a spiritual one. I do the best I possibly can. And maybe, and maybe, this is the worst part, and maybe God will allow me to be in heaven. This this is dangerous theology. And and Matthew has not talked about that until here. And notice that he, he uses the Pharisees and scribes as your examples. I think that it's also a critique of the time. The Pharisees and scribes also are saying, if you don't do exactly what we're going to say, well, you don't get to eat. You don't get to come to the temple. You see how this works? So it's a bully approach back against a bully approach. Um, this is a problem for Matthew.
1: He does this a couple of times. I was going to say, Jesus doesn't. Go after the Pharisees or the teachers of the law here, no, which is he does a lot, that's all I'm saying. I mean, yes. he's saying be is unless you're as righteous or more righteous, than, more righteous. So than he's holding know. them up as being,
0: yeah. He's well, it's like I've said, Matthew is definitely Jewish, definitely understands prophecy, and he's obviously either a Pharisee, <coughs> a Pharisee. Uh, everything he uses is uh, Torah based, you know. or. To not, which is
1: the Hebrew Bible, completely.
0: So this a fascinating passage. It gets worse, but.
1: And remind me, but isn't this written for towards or to the Jews? I mean, or a a Jewish group? They're not. Most likely, yes. So he's he's <clears throat> he's also writing. <clears throat> Just what you said, is not going away. Tor is not right. bad. I mean, it's not, <clears throat> it's how we live it, is what's been
0: bad. Which is why the next part comes in. It makes, I mean, it's a great <clears throat> segment, Robert. He says, then you have heard that it was said, this is him to talk about to those of best, to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. Now he's brought in the Ket Sanhedrin. <laughs> and if you say you fool, you will be liable to the... Now, I don't think this is right, this translation. It's, it should be Gehenna. Is that... It is your... in, Greek in, in Greek, it's Gehenna. Get,
2: get
0: not, get um, a, a fire. The Gehenna is a trash pit. It's literally right outside of Jerusalem, as you, you, you—it's in the Valley of the Kings type of thing. I don't remember the name of the valley, but there's a whole bunch of stuff there. And on the very bottom, it's the trash pit for all of Jerusalem. It stinks. It's always on fire. They're constantly burning because it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can literally see the pillar of smoke for miles. So this—you should be thrown into that. You will be liable to the Gehenna of fire. So. When you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So here's, here's us even arguing that not only does the Torah say, you shall not murder. You, now you're not, you're, now you're not uh, you shouldn't be angry with your brother and sister. You shouldn't insult them. You shouldn't be lying. Um, if you do, you're, you're going to be thrown in the pit of fire. Then he, he says, if you, if you have not fixed these things, if you have not <clears throat> reconciled, do not place your offering on the altar. So, this is all Torah based.
1: But you don't preach that one on, on Stewardship Week, huh? No, <laughs> right. <laughs> you okay. right? You all
0: think right. Okay, all you got to do just leave your money in your pockets and go ahead and go home. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fine. That's what they're going to preach. Yeah. But
2: in the next verse, he says, after you reconciled, then come and offer. That's right.
0: But after you have fixed it, now that you've all let your grudges okay. go, then you can bring your money back to church. So this is this is a fascinating passage of scripture. Again, pretty hardcore. Like I mean, he's not. It's hard. It's hard. It's very hard. Um, but he but he's also taking this idea of murder from the Ten Commandments and he's talking about the destruction of the people, this violent and publicly abusive anger that, that they, they've exhibited with each other for decades.
2: Because the Romans do that.
0: We don't even do that. Well, then let's go to, let's keep going. Because I want to get as much of that done as we can. We've only got about five, six minutes left. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better. That's from the Hebrew Bible, by the way. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And that should be as well. Right? Um, right before verse 30. The last word. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thrown into the pit, the fire. But you're just going to say hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into that pit of fire. We're going to get ahead Now, our translation puts hell. What, does anybody have a guess why? They're burning. Burning. Hell, fire. hell is fire. Hell fire. In the Greek, it, 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 they're wanting it to be more specific. They want you to know that this fire pit... That everybody knows. It's awful. stinks. It's disgusting. I mean, this is... You might as well be thrown away there. They're being very literal.
1: This is kind of the reason that we have an image of hell in our minds. Mm
0: -hmm. That's exactly right.
1: People burning. And
0: And it's a translation problem. Here's here's a perfect example of a translation problem. Matthew is very specific. He uses the word Gehina because the people of the time would have known about it. Hell is a different word. It's like Hades or something like that. It's a different word in, in uh, Greek than it is here. This is, this is a literal physical place.
2: Hades is the person,
1: not the, not the place.
0: Well, yeah, but they use it as a term. Like, it's a, like they use it both as a noun and a verb for them.
1: So anytime hell is referred to in this, that's what they're talking about is the trash in paper the paper. gospel of matthew in Matthew. now there's okay.
0: another place later on that he uses the different word uh but here he is specifically taught you should be thrown into the pit of fire
1: okay is this where you know if you get caught stealing in some countries they you cut your hand off yes i mean is that where really this is like?
0: Hammurabi's pit. okay you know, eye for an eye stuff. And, and we find it in the Hebrew Bible, not eye for an eye, but the, the you know, the, no, yeah, there's, there's, but he says it differently. The, this part specifically, the, and I think it's in Leviticus, you should gouge out your eyeballs with a fiery red ochre if you blessed <laughs> it with a woman. I remember that very distinctly.
2: Uh, Talked that with your teenagers,
0: right? Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, I did. In uh, history, I did that all the time. Uh, you know, and there's a there's another one. It, it's in, it's uh, somewhere in Leviticus. I I can't get it in the top of my head right now. But yeah, I taught that a lot. The eye for an eye thing is under stealing. Under okay. stealing. That's it. That's it.
1: It's further down. Okay. It's about three down.
0: Um. So then let's go on to this last part here, and we're we're gonna we're gonna stop right at after divorce. How's that for fun? Uh, <laughs> It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. We have no idea what this means. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, uh, commits her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is a really interesting um, sociological problem that he has introduced here. You know I want? And I want Dr. Carter to give us the conversation there. So it was also said, whereas Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 is concerned to prevent a divorced woman from remarrying her first husband after she is married a second. Remember, because this is, they had multiple wives at this time. Uh, the pers- this perspective is androcentric. Households and marriages were generally structured on patriarchal lines. Though Gentile and some Jewish women could initiate divorce, um, Jesus' response restricts this male power because of the consequences it brings on a woman. The assumption is, is that the divorced woman remarries to survive. Though some women can return to their father's house or to a relative, she commits adultery and uh, remarrying because the bill of divorce <laughs> cannot cancel the permanent union with her marriage creates. Um, against prevailing cultural climate of easy divorce. It takes a restricted and seemingly harsh approach. However, he says, Jesus does permit divorce. Uh, the word uh, porneus is difficult. Porneus, right? Something is re- refers to incest uh, found in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 6 through 18, which forbids marriage within certain relatives. Gentiles who would join the community of disciples, so the argument goes, would not be familiar with these requirements and would be required to divorce, but the, the noun, porneus, is absent from Leviticus 18 through 19. The noun can also refer to forbidden sexual acts, uh, but uh, makes adultery the most obvious meaning. This, for example, and blah, 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 blah. while it restricts male power and points to a much more egalitarian understanding of marriage, one consequence of its greater emphasis on the permanence of marriage, it may be defined bind. Women more tightly into patriarchal and androcentric patterns. Both the woman's marital status and her post marriage situation are problematic if guided only by this scene. It is not factored into question how does the community of disciples hold together this restricted divorce with the reality of God's love, which enables forgiveness and new possibilities?
1: That's so, if a man wrote his wife a certificate of divorce, yep. she could never remarry. So, what happens to her?
0: She- She has to take care of her. That's the problem. That's why he's bringing it up. This is is a... There's a massive sociological problem taking place that we're seeing it from the 21st century lens. At at this time, if a man divorced his wife, she no longer existed. She has no family lineage. The only thing she can do is just go back to her her family. This is... She is no longer a widow because uh, she, she no, doesn't have a husband. Uh, she, she, she loses all of her income. Um, one of the things that was really weird and uncomfortable is, is that when you look at this anthropologically, what you find is, is that these women usually became prostitutes because mm-hmm. that's the only way they could survive. And most of the time they had children, which, by the way, if he divorces them, he divorces, divorces her, she, he divorces them. Oh. Unless he decides to keep it. So it's a, it's a problematic passage of scripture, needless to say. So, uh, so, um, so what most of these women end up being cast into the outskirts of society and never really get brought back into the fold. So uh, this is why he's saying that. But he's also making a huge, God-awful statement by saying, oh, by the way, if you do this, uh, I think it's more for the men to hear, you better not divorce your wife for stupid reasons, unless she's sleeping around with other men. That's literally what he says. But it doesn't come off that way. And I've heard it proof texted from people's pulpits that this is why divorce is bad and you're all going to burn to hell. I'm like, come on, man, that's not what I said at all. <laughs> I'm sorry. And we get on the soapbox and we can stop recording. Yeah, but, but this is—that is not what Jesus is saying. The, the, if you hear people use this passage of scripture specifically to say this is why you should not get divorced, then um, then we've got problems. Um, and then I would tell you to turn the channel or turn off the podcast or whatever it is you're listening to. Um, that's not just going on here. Remember this whole passage of scripture here, we're not even done with the Sermon on the Mount, right? We're, we're, we're in the second section of it now. He's he's taking scripture and he's he's breaking it down. Uh Leviticus has is very clear about divorce. Uh it, it's, it's in there. Uh, but it's not necessarily God's empire by the time that Matthew comes along.
1: So the Sermon on the Mount is really it's guidelines. It's not the gospel. Mm-hmm.
0: It really doesn't. <laughs> That's a tough one. You it's know in, what I'm saying? It's in the it doesn't really talk, I
1: know, but yeah. it doesn't really talk about in the Sermon on the Mount about Jesus and.
0: Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's just
1: kind of laws or suggestions that this is how you should live your life. Yes. Which is impossible for us to do.
0: There's, there's a lot of this. Yeah. So there's, I would say, the, the, the statement I would make, Tanya, is that the Sermon on the Mount becomes the teachings of Jesus' thoughts regarding God's empire. In the new empire to come, these are things you need to think of.
1: Is it kind of leading up to? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so
0: I don't want to say that it's a suggestion because I think he's <laughs> he's really wanting the world to be better mm-hmm. uh, in God, Matthew's gospel. He wants you to think that the world is going to be different in the time to come. So in that time to come, these are the things that I really want to highlight. And he puts them in the sermon on the now, which is fascinating because none of the other texts really do that. He, he just has these blips and talks and, and the parables specifically, you know, are, are life-giving, challenging lessons, right? But here, it's literally a sermon.
1: It's, okay. it's a comparison or a contrast of two kingdoms. Yes. There's the Roman kingdom. Yes. And there's God's kingdom. And they are one is upside down from the other that's exactly right
0: that's that's and, and that's and that makes it different than his suggestion because mm-hmm. we can't live like Rome we're not going to live like Rome we want to make it better we want to be better we can do better uh, i think that i think that's where I would go with that but yeah i, I mean I can see where that goes right off of that but he and then he challenges it <laughs> like, like then he talks about forgiveness later on after, after all of this. so He is definitely arguing a lot of sociological structures at this point. With that, we're going to stop there. We're going to pick up with Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 next week. Is there any other questions before I stop the recording? Okay, so for those of you that are listening online, I encourage you to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, Uh, and we're going to continue with the Sermon on the Mount as long as it takes, and uh, we'll see you next week.